you're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Israel warns that the ground offensive into Gaza will take time. This will be a long war. The price will be high, but we are going to win for Israel, for the Jewish people, and, and for the values that both countries believe in. We'll have the latest from Israel as the US President Joe Biden announces his visit this week. Plus, we'll examine why the push to open the Gaza crossing continues to falter. Also ahead, Vladimir Putin is hitting the road for the first time since an international arrest warrant was issued. And we'll find out more about the Berlin process. This is a very special summit we have today. It's the 10th Berlin process, but for the very first time in the Western Balkan. We'll examine an initiative meant to bring Brussels closer to the Balkans, but which this year will be overshadowed by the ongoing troubles between Kosovo and Serbia. Plus the papers and why Italy's budget is designed to bring about a baby boom. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in today's news. Belgium has raised its terror alert to its highest level and a Euro 24 football qualifying match was abandoned after two Swedish people were shot dead in the capital, Brussels. Opposition parties in Poland now say they have enough votes to remove the ruling right-wing populist law and justice party and create a broad coalition. And China says it's to impose tighter travel restrictions on civil servants and employees of state-linked businesses. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the US President Joe Biden is to travel to Israel on Wednesday to be briefed on the country's plans for war against Hamas. President Biden is also expected to be reassured that the military operations will be conducted in a way that minimises civilian casualties. Diplomatic efforts have failed to ease the plight of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians trying to escape to Gaza. Well, I'm joined now by Alison Kaplan-Sommer, a journalist for Haaretz in Tel Aviv, also a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. A very good morning to you, Alison. Good morning. Uh, just tell us about the, the, the reaction to Joe Biden's visit tomorrow. Um, well, it's uh, it's very early here, but the reaction is um, obviously extremely positive, as it has been for the uh, amount of time that Secretary of State Antony Blinken has uh, has spent here. He's been here twice already. He had eight hour meetings with U.S with uh, Israeli officials yesterday um, to set up the, the Biden visit, among other things. And um, the, the feeling that um, this is being very tightly coordinated with the United States and, uh, and shows of support, such as um, uh, bringing aircraft carriers and other um, uh, weaponry in the area. Um, not so much as a, uh, you know, feeling that uh, the United States is going to actively militarily participate um, in any uh, conflict that happens, but just the feeling of U.S. support and uh, both moral support and material support um, for aid and, uh, and military supplies. Indeed, I mean, the, the uh, two Israeli officials in their reports have said that um, Secretary of State Blinken uh, 
said that in order for Israel to continue to get international support for its planned ground operations in Gaza, it must address the worsening humanitarian situation. Uh, There is a sense here that with the Gaza opening not actually being, um, letting any aid in at the moment, um, that this shuttle diplomacy and this major diplomatic effort that Antony Blinken is, is engaged in isn't working. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a two-sided coin, right, to this um, close American intervention in what's going on in Israel. I mean, this is uh, fairly new. Um, we've had many, many conflicts before with Hamas in Gaza, and uh, and America has not identified with um, with participating at Israel's side in such a um, heavy-handed um, and uh, massive way as it appears to be now. So the two-sided coin um, is obviously uh, helping Israel and showing its support, but it's also, you know, trying Trying to identify it with uh, with keeping an eye and a break on uh, on Israel and and controlling. Yeah, it's been very difficult, obviously, for Blinken and for all of the uh, international diplomatic pressure to um, to try to push for more uh, humanitarian um, aid into Israel. You have to remember, obviously, that this has two sides. We're talking about from the Israeli side and from the Egyptian side because there's the Rafah crossing point in Egypt. So Egypt could also be a corridor for humanitarian aid. They are afraid to open their checkpoint. They don't want a flood of Gaza refugees in their country. So it's it's double-sided. It's for Israel and it's for Egypt. Speaking from the Israeli side, um, uh, being in Israel and the Israeli media, um, there is a very, very strong position that until there are significant humanitarian gestures towards the nearly 200 Israeli civilians and soldiers being held hostage in Side Gaza, that there's not going to be any kind of significant softening on the humanitarian side, on the Israeli side. They will do it in exchange for something um, that will uh, that will lessen the the pain and the um, and the distress of Israelis' families whose loved ones are being held captive um, in Gaza. But you're not going to see any major humanitarian gestures, one-sided humanitarian gestures coming from Israel until there's um, something from the other side. The the glimpse of a gesture, if you can even call it that, um, is the fact that uh, there's been the first sign of life, a video of one of the uh, Israeli hostages um, that was that was released, uh, a French uh, Israeli citizen. So I think that it's a very strong position in Israel that it's going to have to be humanitarian gesture for humanitarian gesture and nothing um, one-sided is going to be uh, coming easily from the Israeli side. Indeed, we've had a a Hamas leader, Khaled Meshal, saying that um, they have what they need, and I'm quoting there, to free all all Palestinians in Israel's jails, uh, indicating that they may use the Israelis they've kidnapped as as bargaining chips now. Uh, But they have said that non-Israelis are guests who will be released when circumstances allow. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's significant. At least uh, they're pretty straightforward about using them as bargaining chips for prisoners in uh, in Israeli prisons and not as bargaining chips for um, uh, greater humanitarian gestures and the saving of life of, um, of uh, civilian lives in, uh, in Gaza. Um, Israel sees, you know, if there's any bargaining going on, it's going to be... Um, in, uh, a Gaza focused and uh, and not political prisoner focused. And um, there's there are issues though, aren't there? That we've had the the United Nations talking about the siege um, on Gaza as being described as collective punishment. And there were reports coming out of the United States that having seen the readout of the meeting between Antony Blinken and and 
the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, there was reportedly no mention of the need to protect innocent civilians or in, civilians or indeed ab- abide by the laws of war. Um, there are legitimate fears here, aren't there, that this is the the laws of war and the humanitarian rules are being set aside. Um, there's definitely that fear, and um, you know, it's my hope, and I think most of uh, Israel's hope that. Uh, that uh, the Israeli forces will abide by uh, by international laws and um, and standards when it comes to uh, combat and civilians. Um, but I would say that uh, the Israeli um, attitude, the 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 feelings of the Israeli public in terms of sensitivity towards civilian lives, has been tempered by the fact that um, this is a regime that walked into Israeli communities, slaughtered men, women, and children in their beds, tiny babies, you know, taking them hostage. Um, the, the, the feeling of, uh, of, of humanitarianism, I think, among Israeli leaderships and the Israeli people um, has been, you know, such that it, it existed uh, before in previous conflicts, that things are very, very different now, because um, this was really... Uh, uh, civilians were were directly ta- uh, targeted. You know, this was a this was a slaughter situation, and therefore, um, it's it's much harder, I think, even for moderate to progressive um, Israelis to uh, to show the level of sensitivity towards uh, civilians that they uh, that they have in the past. Obviously, nobody wants to target civilians, and it's not an issue of revenge. Let's kill more uh, Gazan civilians because our civilians were targeted. But I think that there's less sensitivity in trying to uproot the Hamas military and political infrastructure that um, created the situation that uh, that led to so much self-destruction uh, and death in Israel. There's less sensitivity um, of um, collateral uh, civilian uh, damage in Gaza than, uh, than existed previously because Israel is really in pain and um, and full of anger and grief over uh, over what's happened to uh, to thousands of its citizens. So, in, in with Israel in such an acute state of agony, what difference can President Biden make? Um, well, I think that uh, it can make Israel feel less vulnerable, maybe at a time that it is uh, feeling extremely uh, vulnerable and the feeling that uh, that the uh, the United States has its back. Um, it, it's interesting. The messaging coming out of the United States is different than in the past. There's uh, nothing. There's no words about using disproportionate force, um, restraint. None of those uh, words are coming uh, from the from the United States. I think that probably the more secure and backed up that uh, that Israel feels by the United States hopefully um, it can uh, it can temp- it, the United States can also have more influence in helping uh, Israel temper its response and uh, the more support that the United States shows the more it can also influence the the behavior of, uh, of Israel and again they're being very very close to the situation and that's a double-sided uh, coin in that they're going to have they're showing more support and they're going to I think be able to influence more when it comes to the way that this is uh, prosecuted and um, and Israel can obviously um, uh, control itself more if it's not fighting a two-front war and I think that's something that the United States is very much focused on using all its diplomatic abilities to prevent the large-scale participation of the Hezbollah from the north in bombarding Israel with the many, many, many missiles um, it has. And um, if that is the result of the United States intervention of um, stopping this from being a full-fledged two-front war, the diplomatic uh, efforts will uh, be worth it and have accomplished a lot. Do you think that 
Israel will listen. I mean, you, you mentioned there that you, you said, you know, is, is Israel going to be able to control itself? And you described the, 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 the pain that Israel is experiencing at the moment. Is this a moment when actually Israel can say, thanks for the support, but actually we're going to do it our way. We don't need you, President Biden. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the ground, Israel is cooperating militarily with the with the United States. I mean, the, this is a, a close, close connection. So I don't think I think if we were in a situation where they were saying to uh, to Biden or to the United States, thanks, but no thanks, goodbye, we're not taking your views into consideration, we wouldn't be seeing Blinken having two visits here, and we wouldn't have Biden uh, coming uh, tomorrow, and we wouldn't have um, the the central commander of uh, of U.S. forces here. Uh, in Israel. So I do think that the the sign that the U.S. is so close to the situation is a sign that Israel will listen um, to uh, to U.S. signals and uh, and is uh, behaving within the boundaries of um, of what the United States says it can tolerate. I think that if Israel was throwing aside uh, whatever the United States was saying, we would not be seeing the things that we're seeing right now. Alison Kaplan-Sommer in Tel Aviv, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Well, meanwhile, queues have been building at the crossing into Egypt, which remains shut to those escaping Israeli airstrikes. And it appears yesterday that the crossing at Rafah was attacked. The United Nations says it's deep in negotiations to get the first aid into Gaza. So let's find out more. I'm joined by Daniela Pallad, who's a managing editor for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. A very good morning to you, Daniela. Welcome back to Monocle Radio. Morning. So just explain to us, what is the latest as far as we stand at the moment? There was talk that the opening uh, at Rafa was going to happen yesterday, but it, it didn't seem to do so. There was um, suggestions that some fuel had got back into Gaza. But, but how tight a situation do we have there at the moment? Well, this has been a clear priority for the Americans, who, as, as Alison said, have been working very closely with with the Israelis, but are, are definitely standing back when it comes to any kind of restrictions on Israeli operations concerning Gaza. So the US has, has uh, appointed a coordinator on humanitarian aid who is going to work with Israel to try and develop the, the possibility of uh, of aid crossing into Gaza um, from Mafa. But this is obviously, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of a small plaster on, on a gaping wound, you know, whatever humanitarian aid comes through is not going to be enough really to meet the needs of, of the, of the you know, more than two million people in Gaza who need it. Indeed. I mean, we have a situation now that, as is widely reported, Gaza is one of the most populated areas on earth. It's the most densely populated areas on earth. And we effectively have a large part of the, the the strip funneled south towards the border. In, the, the fact remains is that that cannot be anything other than a humanitarian crisis. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is not happening in, in an orderly uh, way, you know, in, in any way, shape or form. About 600,000 Gazans have um, left the, the area of Gaza City, which is an enormous amount. Um, and it's certainly not a a question of Rafa opening and allowing them to just sort of proceed peacefully um, into Egypt. This is definitely not uh, desirable as far as uh, uh, Sisi's government is concerned. I mean, the current talks are focusing on uh, those with foreign citizenship, allowing those them to, uh, to to leave for humanitarian reasons. But the idea that that they will, there will be a mass exodus of, of Palestinians into Egypt is just not realistic at the moment. No, this is something that the, the that Cairo has said it it will also not accept large numbers of refugees fleeing from from the crisis for both political and economic reasons. 
So what happens to these people who are now stuck in, in, in the south of Gaza, unable to get out, unable to get aid? And the reports that are coming out is that people who have fled from the northern end of the Gaza Strip are going to, to not situations which are worse, but which are just as bad. Look, there isn't a, a, an easy solution. This is not this is this is not something that has been planned or thought through um, militarily. The you know the, the Israelis want uh, an emptier ground in which to um, operate in. So right now, and as Alison said, the humanitarian situation uh, for Gazans is not is not their priority. I think in the coming days we are going to see um, aid brought in. Uh, to whatever meaningful extent is impossible uh, to tell. But this is some way in which, although the European Union and the Americans right now are not in any position to influence Israel's military operations, this is a way that, in a way, Israel will also expect them to be involved and expect them to contribute. But as I said, it's a very short-term solution. And again, there will be many people who will refuse to leave um, given their own personal trauma and history of dipl- displacement and also fear that they're going to be entering into something potentially worse than the situation that they're already living in. Indeed, and the, the, the question that must be asked is that what exactly is Israel trying to achieve here? Um, obviously, the destruction and elimination of Hamas, but in terms of what how it is playing out or how it is starting to play out, will this actually achieve what the Israelis want? Well, I think we've got used over the last uh, 15, 16 years, the idea of sort of intense but limited operations in Gaza that have been um, con- contained and you know immensely traumatic and led to loss of life. But there was always a limited time that the operation would, would carry on. And we're not seeing that here. I think um, we, we have to really be prepared for a long-term um, operation. I mean, many people are, have described this as Israel's 9-11, and I think that's absolutely true. And if you think that the uh, consequences of, of 9-11 included you know, invasion of Afghanistan to destroy al-Qaeda, which was achieved very quickly, but then led to you know two decades and longer of consequences, or indeed the 2003 invasion of, of Gaza, of, uh, of Iraq, sorry, and or Israel's uh, occupation of South Lebanon, which was intended to be a security measure, uh, lasted for 15 years, an incredible loss of, of life on on all sides. And now Israel's north is uh, as, as vulnerable as one could possibly imagine. Daniela Pellet, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me is the political journalist and Monocle Radio regular, Vincent McAvinney. A very good morning to you, Vinny. 
Good morning. The last time I spoke to you, you were looking at the sea. Have things changed? Considerably, Thought yes. they might have done, right? <laughs> OK, let's get down to business then. Um, let's examine this event that happened at uh, in, in Brussels yesterday, this shooting of two Swedes. Um, it's pushed the, the Belgian uh, security threat level up to its highest, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. This was an incident uh, which there is social media of uh, where a man speaking Arabic wearing a high-vis vest gets off a moped uh, and starts shooting people with quite a large gun indiscriminately on a street at about seven o'clock last night. Uh, He chases them around and then chases several of those people into a building. Two people were killed. Uh, One other person was injured. The two that were killed were believed to be uh, in Swedish uh, Swedish football um, shirts uh, because Sweden was playing Belgium in a Euro 2024 qualifier in the city last night. Now, this has led to a massive security alert. This person is still on the loose. Uh, The stadium last night, the players decided to pack the game in. They stopped it halfway uh, and then thousands of spectators were kept there for period to try and ensure their safety. The advice coming out this morning from authorities is, if possible, stay at home uh, and be vigilant today because they think that this is a terrorist situation. It's it's one of those things that sort of comes out of the blue that we, st- you, dare I say it, that the news narrative moves on and you think Islamic State, let's try and remember who they were. But the fact is, it's, it is still a present threat, isn't it? If you have individuals like this who, who, are, who are deciding to, to, to meet terror at. Yeah, that's right. A video has emerged of a a person purporting to be the attacker, and he is wearing a high-vis vest and looks very similar. He said he's doing it uh, for God and that he's inspired by the Islamic State group. Uh, Obviously, you know, they are still active in some forms. They're still online trying to recruit people. Uh, It's unclear yet how connected this person is to any group in particular. Uh, But it will send shockwaves. I mean, you know, we had a period of a couple of years where this was happening, sadly, on a semi-regular basis. You know, there was many times I was reporting for Monocle from attacks in Westminster in London and in in London Bridge. Uh, And then there was, you know, waves of attacks in France and in Brussels, too. And it's sad that this spectre is now coming back after the relative quiet on this front in the pandemic years. President Macron, who's visiting Albania currently, saying that Europe has been shaken by this uh, once again. Uh, Let's move on to a story in the Los Angeles Times. Judge grants gag order in Trump's 2020 election case. What does this what's this all about, please, Vinny? Yes, that's right. This is the Washington case. So this is one of the really important. I mean, he's got a lot to keep track of. But I'd say this is one that's pretty important for the future uh, of America. This is the case about the January the 6th uh, insurrection. Uh, And after watching the other cases that are going on at the moment, particularly in New York, where Trump has tried to attack uh, members of the court staff, for instance, on social media, uh, a U.S. judge who has already been attacked uh, in public by Donald Trump uh, has a approves a request from special counsel Jack Smith for a limiting gag order to prevent Trump from attacking prosecutors, witnesses and court officials involved in this case. That also includes Mike Pence, who is obviously was very involved on January the 6th, uh, who Donald Trump is currently running for the Republican ticket against. And that will mean that he cannot attack him in the campaign over January the 6th issues. Uh, but he is still able to run his campaign. So the court here deciding to get preemptive on this because we've seen Donald Trump just trying to weaponize all of these cases against him and sort of wrap them into his general campaign for the presidency.
Uh, let's move on to the story in the New York Times. Um, how Nepal's deal with China for an airport has become a bit of a problem. Tell us a little bit more, bit more about that, please. Yeah, it's a really fascinating long read in the New York Times today. And I know you're talking on the programme about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative Conference. Uh, and this is a project that China has tried to wrap into that, much to uh, Nepal's objections. But it's an airport that they were building uh, in the city of Pokhara for Nepal. They did a deal uh, around a decade ago. But the paper details a sort of 10 years of problems of it being over budgeted by China, of the restrictions that China put on, of them bringing in shoddy labor forces and inexperienced project managers. The project overran uh, and wasn't built to international standards. Uh, and it's fascinating to see. It is a real lesson for other countries tempted to you know, access these sort of sweetheart deals that China was giving out for the loans to build these projects in you know, periods where uh, there was no interest to pay off, for instance, which is what Nepal had. It can then become very problematic. And also, on the security front, the security systems inside were all Chinese built and to Chinese specification. And there are now questions about whether or not they still in Beijing will have access to security in buildings like this. Indeed. And, it, and this is an excellently told story about how Nepal suddenly found itself um, having an international airport that was built by the Chinese, paid for by the Chinese. So Nepal was, as is often the case here, absolutely beholden to China in the future in terms of loan repayments and also you know, political influence as well as a result. Yeah, that's right. And and the building work itself all came through from Chinese contractors with Chinese suppliers. Uh, and there might be issues down the line because there were some components of this building that were deemed to be not up to scratch as well. And so that then leaves you going back to China to ask for potentially help with the repairs or, you know, the raising questions about what was done. It brings in a Nepalese uh, project manager who worked on big projects in the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. He was asking basic questions about things like how um, what the soil integrity sample was like before they'd laid the runway on this project because he was brought in just after that. Uh, and he discovered that they hadn't done these studies, that they'd cut corners. And that could lead to big problems in the future with uh, things like cracks and lumps appearing in the runway itself. So it means that Nepal not only on the hook for the money that it's paid out, which they believe is they've overpaid for this airport, they might also be struggling in future to get technical support with China on this build. It's funny, isn't it? Because when you when you hear about China going into to nations and, and building quickly, you assume that they do it well as well. But this article is very good at exposing the fact that you know there were problems that they hadn't that they designed the airport draining system without taking into consideration how bad the rainfall problem was and that the, that the quality was quite shoddy and that those on the on the job were, were newly qualified. The, the sort of cowboy builder um, story is being told here, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And I can remember a, a long time ago in sort of 2011, I was working in Tanzania uh, and China was building roads uh, heavily at that point and also, I think, starting to get into the kind of building of buildings. Uh, but many of the locals said that the roads that they were building, you know, then weren't quite up to scratch. And, you know, as they are meeting uh, in, in this conference in China on the Belt and Road Initiative, it'll be interesting to see whether or not any of the nations, and there are many of them who have taken part in this scheme, uh, do decide to raise questions when it comes to the quality of the works and the costs as well.
Now, finally, um, you're a gentleman who likes to shell out a little bit to get to go to an enormous pop gig. Um, I think, may I have I just um, exposed a deep secret of Vinnie McAvinnie? No, not uh, not you, at all. You, no, it, is you, a, it is a hobby. Yeah, you love a bit of Taylor Swift, um, but it's getting your hobby's getting quite expensive, isn't it, Vincent? According to the, the Wall Street Journal. That is right. This is being dubbed funflation, uh, and it is all about the money that people are spending. In the US, around $95 billion this year expected to be spent on live entertainment, and that's sporting, that's concerts uh, and theme parks. Uh, but the m- amount is going up. Uh, it's up 23% uh, from last year, the Wall Street Journal reports. Uh, and this is because there is a huge pent-up demand from the pandemic years for live experiences. And when you look at the moment at the economic Economic data, people aren't really buying goods as much. You're seeing falls in manufacturing demand because many people stocked up on, you know, renewing devices and, and buying things in the pandemic, much of which they maybe don't need as much anymore. Uh, and they're pivoting towards experiences about going out and traveling, you know, sort of return to normal travel figures. But one of the things they want to do is because, you know, there were some great albums that came out in, in the pandemic and they want to get out to concerts. And, you know, I've been going to things this year, I went to see Harry Styles and Beyonce. Uh, and definitely ticket prices were much higher uh, than the pandemic. And of course, the big one as well is Taylor Swift, who's uh, got this uh, movie of her concert that's out this week, which has broken all records. Uh, That was in cinemas, where again, we've seen a rise in ticket prices. And it generally is because there is a bit of a a demand. And these businesses, which were starved of cash, touring businesses, cinemas, theme parks, are trying to recoup a bit of that money that they lost in those years. But it does mean that it's locking fans out uh, from that great live concert experience, especially when you look at, in particular, music concerts and what's being dubbed dynamic pricing, where the price adjusts in real time depending on demand for the show. So it's something that people are saying isn't fair and isn't making it uh, mean that real fans get to go and enjoy these experiences. Kenny, we've got 10 seconds left together. What's your upper limit for a price for Taylor Swift? I budgeted 400 quid and I only had to pay 72. So I was for a Wembley show. I I did pretty well, actually. I did buy the LP on vinyl, which I think cost about 30 pounds to get a code to buy the ticket first. But I think in the long run, I had a saving. Vincent McAvenny, thank you very much indeed for that. You're listening to The Globalist. Fourteen thirty-one in Singapore, which is where we head next. The Chinese leader Xi Jinping is gathering world leaders in Beijing for a high-profile Belt and Road Forum. The aim is, proje- is to project ambitions as an alternative global leader to the United States. Well, at the top of the forum's guest list is no other than Russia's President Vladimir Putin on his first trip to a major global power since the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for his arrest. Well, joining me now from Singapore is Samir Puri, who's author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine and a ceasefire observer in the first Donbass war. A very warm welcome to the programme, Samir. Thank you for joining us. No, oh, good to be with you. Um, right, well, your, your line is struggling a little bit, but we shall persevere. Um, just explain to us more broadly the Belt and Road Summit. and What is its aim now? It's, it's, it's on an anniversary this year. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how much people keep abreast of, of these things in the West, but certainly 10 years since the Belt and Road Initiative uh, was announced, is quite a big deal for the Chinese. And it's quite a big deal for the governments that have entered into agreements with the Chinese government to to receive funding and infrastructure projects built through the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, You can certainly expect that Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership will be putting out the party bunting and making all sorts of grandiose claims to, to global leadership 
But I think we shouldn't also be distracted from the fact it is a really significant uh, sort of foreign policy concept that the Chinese have introduced, and it touches so many countries in so many parts of the world, this Belt and Road Initiative. And the, the, the issue is, is it, here now, and we've just heard it in the um, in the press review with Vincent McAvinney, that enormous amounts of investments were made by China. I think it was a trillion dollars uh, in, into Belt and Road in, in, with the intention of gaining global influence. How much has that succeeded? Outside of the West, really well. Inside of the West, in the UK and the US, not at all, because, of course, China is mainly lambasted for all sorts of things that it does differently. And that's not me passing a judgment on anything in particular. But I think it's just important that uh, the issue of influence really depends on where you're sitting. And yeah, interesting, just yesterday in a Singaporean newspaper, one of the sort of Singaporean grandees uh, wrote that, uh, quite correctly, the US has mounted a really strong global campaign to persuade countries not to join the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's kind of been partially successful because, you know, countries like Germany, Japan, India, South Korea, they haven't joined it. Italy, you know, joined and then sort of dropped out. But there are 150 countries that have signed on. And, you know, there's 193 member states of the UN. So I think it really is a matter of where you're sitting in the world and sort of the news you consume as to what the BRI actually means. There's a, there's a line in, in an article in the New York Times from a couple of days ago, though, that the the, the way that the Belt and Road Initiative is working now says that China's role has shifted from being the world's largest bilateral lender to also its largest debt collector. I mean, that really shifts things, doesn't it? It does. It's certainly a source of power, isn't it? Uh, and people who sort of pursue that line of thinking always point to Sri Lanka uh, in particular because they actually ran into huge issues around debt to China after uh, uh, China rebuilt their port. But, you know, not every story is quite as apocalyptic as that. And, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, controversies and difficulties around an outside power coming in and, and paying for all of this stuff and, and building it and then sort of buying your natural resources in exchange, which is the thing the Chinese get back. So, of course, it's not going to be without controversy. It's clearly going to have uh, issues that some countries face. Uh, but some of those countries are very happy to carry on doing business with China and to not listen to the West who are sort of telling them to not do business with China. And that is one of the emerging themes of great importance that isn't going to reverse in the coming decades, I think. Let's move on to the guest of honour, or Vladimir Putin, on his first major trip since the International Criminal Court issued a, a warrant for his arrest over the, uh, over the invasion of Ukraine. Um, this is a moment, isn't it, where, at least from Moscow's side, an alliance can very publicly be formed uh, very much against the West. Completely. And you know, anyone who sort of worries about a new world order courtesy of China and Russia is always going to think of the murder, murderous war in Ukraine and the way that China has turned a blind eye to it and you know, will roll out the red carpet, presumably, for Vladimir Putin, who's persona non grata you know, in the West, clearly. Um, it's a big win for Russia that they made a bet about a decade ago, actually, around the first time Russia invaded Ukraine. It was sanctioned, not to the extent it has been now by the West, but it certainly was sanctioned back then and by Australia and Japan and others. Uh, the Russians really made a move to uh, economic interdependency with China. They agreed 10 years ago to a big gas sale deal of Russian gas to the Chinese. And so it's sort of 10 years on in that relationship. And now Russia and China are both under Western pressure. So they've pulled together. Of course, you know, those with a sort of moral compass are going to look at this and say, how on earth can China abet 
you know, this this war criminal who's you know presided over this invasion of Ukraine. On the other side, a lot of people outside of the West see lots of different conflicts around the world and don't necessarily see anything particularly uniquely heinous about the you know the war in, in Ukraine. And God forbid they even think that Russia has some rationale for waging that war. So that's not a totally alien opinion to encounter in the wider world. Some of these countries that do business with China and are not averse to doing business with Russia still as well. How much does it highlight Mr. Putin's need for China here? Immensely. Uh, without China, Mr. Putin and Russia would be sunk. And I have to say, when you know the West organised its sanctions against Russia, rightfully so, you know, in 2022 when the invasion of Ukraine began, quite a few, I think, Western strategists and think tankers and others had an unrealistic hope that Russia's economy could be sunk by the G7 and the West cutting it off from you know swift banking and and, and freezing Russian assets. But China has been the saving grace for for Russia. Russia's economy. But let's not also forget in a different way, China, uh, India is still trading with Russia as well. So it's not just China. It is actually large chunks of the rest of the world that have actually kept their business open with with Russia in varying ways. Samir, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. That was uh, Samir Puri, author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine and a ceasefire observer in the first Donbass war. The time here in London is at 7.38. A quick look now at the latest headlines. Belgium has raised its terror alert to its highest level and a Euro 24 football qualifier was abandoned after two Swedish people were shot dead in the capital, Brussels. Belgium's foreign minister has condemned it as a terrorist attack. Sweden's prime minister says it's a harrowing attack on Swedish citizens. A man who identified himself as a member of the Islamic State group has claimed responsibility in a video posted online. Opposition parties in Poland now have enough votes to remove the ruling right-wing Populist Law and Justice Party. With more than 99% of the votes counted, the Law and Justice Party won the most votes, but Donald Tusk's Liberal Civic Coalition Party had 30.48%. Mr Tusk is now most likely to be able to form a broad coalition. And China says it'll impose tighter travel restrictions on civil servants and employees of state-linked businesses. Workers will also have their private travel abroad and their foreign connections scrutinised. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. a.m. in Rome, 7.39 a.m. here in London. You're back with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, Italy's right-wing government has approved a budget with the aim of increasing the country's birth rate. Families will be encouraged to have more children and there'll be lower taxes paid by working mothers. In Italy, both women's employment and the birth rate are among the lowest in the European Union. So will this budget fix it? Well, Claudio Lavanga is an NBC News journalist based in Rome and joins me now. Good morning, Claudio. Good morning, Emma. So the Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, says this is both a serious and realistic budget. Is she right? Well, she is trying to solve an old age problem in Italy. She allow me the pun, because uh, this has been a problem in more ways than one, in the sense that the country has had one of the, if not the, uh, sometimes lowest, lowest uh, birth rate in the whole of Europe and sometimes in the world uh, for many years now. And as a consequence... Uh, there are less and less young people um, every single year. Less babies are being made, less people every year. And still, when you break it down into numbers, it is shocking because there's just a statistics that came out a few days ago, about three days ago, uh, by ISTAT, the uh, National Statistics Agency, 
in Italy that says that the number of young people aged 18 to 34 has dropped by 23% in the past 20 years. And that's even more impressive if you look at how, if you break it down into regions. In the south of Italy, that's 40% less in, in 20 years. Well, that's 3 million less young people living in Italy today than there were in 2002. And this is a major problem on several fronts. Obviously, that means that 3 million less people uh, who can work, pay taxes and pensions of those who came before them, leaving a gaping hole in both the Italian treasury's coffers as well as pension funds. So the right-wing government uh, is trying to do something about it, like you know many, many governments uh, before it. Uh, the problem here is that you know, there will be two ways to, um, uh, to fill the gap. One is to allow uh, young migrants, there are lots of migrants, of course, in, in Italy, young migrants to fill the gap. Uh, but we're talking about a, a right-wing uh, coalition that is very anti-immigration, especially the one led by uh, Giorgia Meloni. So she's, uh, instead of uh, thinking about legalizing uh, migrants so that they become legal workforce here in Italy, they are uh, making their arrival and life here uh, pretty difficult. So what they are saying uh, is that in this budget, um, they uh, promised to uh, give incentives to mothers with at least two children who will pay less taxes, and that from the second child onwards, nursery will be free. Well, the problem is that the cost of nursery was never on the list of reasons why Italians don't make children in the first place, Emma. The the, the issue here, isn't it, is Giorgio Maloney has, has done something incredibly clever here in t- politically, hasn't she? Because as Italy's first female prime minister, she is there emphasising, and I quote, that women are an untapped resource. And by emphasising the importance of working women economically, she can then pull in the immigration issue. Well, that's that's the aim of the government. The problem here uh, is that she's not really tapping on the real uh, uh, issue here, because as I mentioned, you know, the, the cost of nursery has never been the problem, uh, or uh, promising lower taxes for women with, from the second child onwards is not going to solve the problem because the cost of living will surpass that anyway. Uh, so the, the Itali- this is more of a cultural than an economical problem uh, and bears a shared responsibility. On one side, you have young people who blame the cost of living uh, for not leaving the nest until they are well into the 30s. Actually, according to ISTAT, um, the average age um, uh, when uh, young people, well, young people, people leave their um, family home is 36 uh, right now. And the problem uh, is not that the cost of the cost of nurseries, the cost of having babies, the cost of living in the gen- in general, uh, and I last I just lost count how many times I heard young people um, saying that they're not leaving their families and therefore they're not getting married, therefore they're not having children uh, because it's just too expensive to do so, and perhaps it's a shared responsibility because of a cultural problem in the sense that um, <laughs> I, I, I mean I, they feel like. Um, what's the point of leaving home when they are so fine there, uh, when it's so expensive to rent a house, uh, and they, you know, leave a life of a Peter Pan uh, until they are 36. And I'm talking, I mean, I can give you my personal story here. I'm one of the very few Italians who left home when he was 22, uh, and it became a family tragedy. (laughs) Instead of my parents saying, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, it's great, you are going to uh, look for your independence. They said this is the beginning of a very dark family, a very dark period for our family. 
Uh, and that was 25 years ago. Uh, and, and it looks like that this sociological problem has not been solved yet. And people leave home later and later in the days. People do not make children. And as a consequence, uh, you know, the economy suffers. Claudio, I do hope that that problem has resolved itself uh, a quarter of a century on and that your family have forgiven you. But when it when it comes to what Giorgio Maloney's uh, plans are, is it going to make Italian couples or Italian uh, men leave the, 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 the apron strings of, of Mama at home and actually go and go out there and make a ton of babies? Well, my mother uh, would have been very happy if this new budget came in 25 years ago, well, 25 years, about 50 years ago, because... You know, she had four children, so nursery would have been three for, for three of them. Uh, but you know, she managed. She managed anyway. Uh, and uh, yeah, they forgave. They, they forgave me about three days in when I found a house and a job in, within a week. Um, but that's that's exactly the the issue. Will will this budget uh, really seriously uh, solve this problem, or should this be uh, a bit of a mixed uh, solution? Yes, give incentives to mothers. Uh, who have, you know, more than one child, uh, yes, pay for uh, nurseries, but also allow the untapped resource also that there is in this country, which is the incredibly high number of young uh, and healthy and educated sometimes uh, migrants who are standing by waiting for asylum. And instead of, you know, kicking them out and making their life impossible, you know, do allow them uh, to work legally in this country. Claudio Lavanga on the line from Rome. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 8.47 in Tirana, 7.47 here in London. Now, the so-called Berlin Process Summit is being held this week in the Albanian capital of Tirana. The initiative offers an opportunity for high-level cooperation between leaders of the European Union and the Western Balkans. The summit's taking place for the first time outside the EU. Now, joining from Ljubljana to unpack this further is our Balkans correspondent, Guy Deloni. A very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Emma. So, for those of us who aren't intimately acquainted with the Berlin Process, what is it? So in a nutshell, it's the European Union's wheeze to convince the six countries of the Western Balkans that they really, really, really like them, honest, and uh, we really want you to join the European Union uh, rather than treat you like stepchildren, which is the impression you might have got, bearing in mind that we said you know, 20 years ago that we wanted you in, in Thessaloniki, in the so-called Thessaloniki Declaration, and you're still not in there. Uh, so this initiative dates back to 2014. It was originally Angela Merkel who kicked it off, hence Berlin Process, because the first meeting was held in Berlin. And there's been a summit every year since, and... People in Brussels will try and persuade you and and European Commission leaders will try and persuade you that there's fresh impetus uh, to this process because of what's been going on in Ukraine with Russia's invasion. This has awakened the European Union to the fact that it needs the countries of the Western Balkans in the European Union to make Europe and the European Union a lot safer and more harmonious. Uh, But of course, there's plenty of sceptics and indeed cynics who will roll their eyes and say, oh yeah, this again. Indeed. I mean, are they going for that argument? Of course they are. And, you know, you're leaving out people like Albania's Prime Minister, Eddie Rama, who was hosting 
um, the proceedings at this uh, Berlin Process Summit. He said recently during um, uh, an event in in Slovenia where all of the uh, heads of government from the Western Balkans were present and indeed people from the European Union, the European Commission were present, uh, that he, he just scoffed at the idea that was presented by one of the EU officials that the countries of the Western Balkans could be in by 2030. Uh, and and it wasn't, he didn't even need to articulate further. Just his laughter, which I think was genuine, uh, w- was quite enough to illustrate that people have heard all these promises before. They've had all these dates, these deadlines come and go, just whiz by. And uh, people, frankly, they're becoming increasingly testy. Uh, Eddie Rammer of Albania is quite sardonic about it. But, you know, in Serbia, now the polling is indicating there are actually more people opposed to Serbia joining the European Union than there are to it joining. There's a lot of don't knows in there. Uh, but you've now got, you know, what they would call a plurality of people who say they don't want to join the European Union. And North Macedonia, meanwhile, actually changed its name so that it could have a chance at accession talks. And it's still being frustrated because of uh, some bilateral shenanigans with Bulgaria. So it's all very frustrating for them. The gestures this year, though, seem to be rather different, don't they? I mean, the fact that they're holding the meeting outside the European Union and the fact that when you see Ursula von der Leyen being incredibly positive about the whole process. Does this restore hope at all? Well, I've got to say, they need to be positive. They need to present better. The European Union has been absolutely shocking for years, if not decades, at its PR and indeed its deeds towards the countries of the Western Balkans. It, all the way along, it's, it's behaved very much like the Western Balkans are the recalcitrant children at the back of the class um, who need to behave themselves before they can get the treats that the, uh, the good children at the front of the class are receiving. And this isn't the way to go about things at all, and it clearly hasn't worked. So this time, Ursula von der Leyen in Tirana has been saying, this is a decisive moment. Don't miss the opportunity. Grab the opportunity. Seize the moment, and we will work with you together. And what she's saying will come from this is, if there are reforms within the countries of the Western Balkans, in essence, they will, bit by bit get the benefits of being European Union members, that if they make reforms in certain areas, they will be they will gain access to the European single market. They'll get access to the European digital single market and the SEPA single European payment area uh, financial transaction system. Um, so these are the concrete steps which she is saying that the European Union is going to make towards uh, the countries of the Western Balkans. Although the downside of that is it's still not full membership. It's looking like very much, well, you won't be in the European Union, but you'll have some of the benefits of it if you make these reforms. Finally, briefly, Guy, that one of the issues that is dominating the headlines are the, it's the problems between Serbia and Kosovo following this, this sort of violent incident on the 24th of September. Tell us where that leaves everything. And that we're still ongoing with that. And the uh, members of the European Parliament were last night going through a resolution which will be debated on Thursday about what's going on between Serbia and Kosovo. And the word that's coming out of the media is that they are uh, preparing a resolution which will call for sanctions or measures against Serbia um, because of its attitude towards this armed incident last month. Uh, this would actually match what's happened to Kosovo, which has already got measures which had been taken against it uh, because it hadn't been doing what the European Union asked in terms of de-escalating tensions. So in the past few days, you've actually seen Serbia playing conspicuously nicely with regard to Kosovo 
uh, saying that uh, calling on ethnic Serbs to participate in fresh elections in North Kosovo and also Prime Minister Anna Brnabic and Prime Minister Alban Kurti of Kosovo shared a platform last night to sign an agreement by all six countries of the Western Balkans on recognising each other's professional qualifications. So you're seeing the mood changing uh, rather while the uh, threat of these sanctions is hovering. Guy Zaloni in Ljubljana, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. Finally, let's talk fashion with the retail expert and brand consultant, Rebecca Tay. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Emma. Good to have you with us. We have a new creative director at Moschino. We do indeed. So it's his name is David Wren. I'm not sure if it's Wren or Rene. He was he spent 20 years at Gucci, which I think is quite significant, um, most recently under Alessandro Michele. And it's been interesting because it's been seven months since Jeremy Scott left. And it was a bit of a surprise when Jeremy left. He'd been there for about 10 years. So I think everyone was kind of surprised. There was no sort of rumor, as there often is, about him even leaving. So, yeah, they've sort of been um, there's been an empty seat there for a little while. So we have the new um, Gucci we have the, the, this new man from uh, from Gucci, David Arene. What is what are the expectations of of what he can do to Moschino? I think um, he is Italian, so I think there is this expectation that he will sort of really bring back this Italian heritage. Jeremy Scott um, was known primarily kind of for his sort of American, sort of playful, tongue-in-cheek approach to the brand. It was very successful. You know, if you'd ever seen any of those pieces that Katy Perry wore to the Bet Gala, um, the chandelier dress, for example, the hamburger dress. He also um, riffed on Barbie, even way before the Barbie movie and McDonald's even. So he was really kind of playful. I think David will bring a little bit more of the kind of potentially Italian glamour, potentially. Um, the brand is known for kind of dressing on the red carpet, um, but they're saying that it is sort of very Italian. Um, who knows what that will mean specifically, but he did work under Frida Giannini and Alessandra Gucci. So it's definitely kind of Italian through and through. Let's talk about Birkenstock. Its IPO last week was mind-boggling, given its very humble uh, beginnings as as just sort of an incredibly functional, and dare I say it, two decades ago, a very ugly shoe. Uh, <laughs> by the contents of my wardrobe, obviously uh, my mind's changed on that one. Um, but were people happy with how the IPO went? They, ch- they chose to list in New York, didn't they? Yes, they did. So they'd valued it at $8.6 billion. So that is US dollars. Um, But it initially kind of went over the billion dollar mark about two years ago when we first started really kind of seeing Birkenstocks kind of become popular again. Celebrities were wearing them. They weren't so much the sort of frumpy uh, kind of granola, not so, you know, kind of ugly shoe that they once were. Um, But as you say, people were quite disappointed. So um, they had been around for 250 years. So it's not a new company, but they launched on the stock market in New York and went on Wednesday um, and quite quickly their shares tumbled. So they weren't, you know, they entered at a high and I think, you know, investors are still kind of optimistic that it, you know, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, and the actual family the, that own Birkenstock did become a lot richer after the IPO, um, but they did um, see a disappointing kind of first week of sales. Indeed, I think the Birkenstock heirs have become $3.4 billion richer since the IPO. But what is the long-term prospect for, for a, a, a brand which not necessarily has hit saturation point quite yet, but is very much at the top of its game right now? 
Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think because, you know, there was, especially after COVID, we were all sort of used to wearing comfortable shoes. Um, but they have managed to reinvent themselves uh, in the last few years even. So they've done lots and lots of collaborations with designer brands. They've had one that's with Manolo Blahnik, for example, where they're very, very expensive. So they're not just your sort of 60-pound Birkenstocks. Um, so I think that's sort of why shareholders are still kind of optimistic that even though the first week of tra trading didn't go so well, I think they're saying, you know, there's still a, a, a good, his, good, sorry, a good projection kind of come to come. Um, they're suggesting that people hold on to those shares, essentially. Um, let's talk more generally, finally, Rebecca, in the time we have about the luxury world and the luxury market as it stands. Is it as healthy as it could be? No. So I think potentially this is also why Birkenstock didn't do so well, but um, more in the sense of kind of the luxury brand. So LVMH, um, you know, we're in October, it fell to its lowest stock. It's sorry, the LVMH stocks fell to their lowest levels at this year. So um, I think they're about nine. They grew nine percent in terms of sales, but their shot, their shares have fallen to twenty percent over the last six months. So um, they're saying that you know the luxury market is really, really seeing kind of a cooling off. Um, it could be due to sort of pressures in China, economic spending uh, generally a little bit less over there. Um, the you know, the kind of cost of living crisis, people are tightening their belts a little bit more. But in general, the, lux the luxury sector is definitely suffering at the moment. Rebecca Tay, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Tom Webb, Cece Armstrong and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. Well, we'll be getting the latest on the humanitarian situation in Gaza. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.